Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Jonathan All, keeping the seat warm for the arrival of Sarah Fenske. Today we're taking a look at the future of American politics. The United States government is a two-party system, and we're stuck with it, right? Well, not so, says author Frank DiStefano. But he isn't advocating for a third party to shake things up necessarily. He's predicting a much more radical realignment of our two major political parties. The former congressional aide and presidential campaign staffer says the Democratic and Republican parties are out of touch, out of line, and may see themselves go the way of the Federalist and Whig parties. Frank DiStefano joins us this hour. His latest book is titled The Next Realignment, Why America's Parties Are Crumbling and What Happens Next. Frank, welcome to the show. Hey, Jonathan. Thanks a lot for having me. And I'd really like to invite our listeners into the conversation. If you have a question or comment about this topic, give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at STL public publicradio.org, especially if you are aligned with one of these parties, but you feel that either the Democrats or the Republicans are becoming out of touch with you. So, Frank, your your book reads a lot like a history textbook, especially in the first part, about how we got to where we are. And while all that's interesting, I'm much more interested in where you think we're going, that the, the, the two major parties we have are simply not reflective of the true beliefs of the people that they purport to represent. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, people think that American parties, you know, change gradually over time, and that's not really the case. What happens is they 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 break in these noticeable traumatic bursts, and this is what you know what you're talking about with the history that this has happened again and again throughout American history, and we just don't have any personal experience with it because throughout our lives we've had the the liberal uh, New Deal liberalism as the motivating ideology of the Democratic Party. And modern conservatism is the the ideology for the Republican Party. And we've had that fight since 1932. And it was a fight that we created to deal with the problems of the time and place that we created these parties. And what happens, though, is that, you know, once we create these parties to have a debate, they get set in stone for a long time because of habit and inertia and careerism. And, And the country then starts to drift. And when it goes too far, eventually you hit a point where the parties are no longer in concert with the problems that we have, and something comes and knocks them down, and we have this big traumatic period of a, called the realignment where the parties collapse, and sometimes they take on new names, sometimes the old names are there, and we fill them with new people and new ideas and start a, a new era in America. And if you look at the patterns of the past and history and and how we got here, you can see that the same things are happening again and that we're headed to another one of these these disruptive eras where our parties are coming apart and we're going to have new ones that deal with, you know, the problems of a new age. Can you pick a couple of examples of how, like, one for each of the two major parties, one where the, a bedrock of how they were founded and what their identity is, is not relevant or in touch anymore uh, with with the modern problems and the modern viewpoints? Yeah, I, I think my favorite of all of them is, is, is 1896, because I feel like there's just so many parallels between what happened in 1896 and what's happening right now. So to, to just briefly kind of draw the picture of the age, you know, this is the beginning of, of industrializ- industrialization really setting in. And we had two parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, who had 
emerged out of the Civil War and had been, since the Civil War, been fighting the Civil War issues, North versus South and dealing with the, the re Reconstruction and putting the country back together after the war. And politics at that time was completely dominated by the Civil War issues. You'd have campaign time and, you know, this is rum, rum Romanism and rebellion uh, and, and waving the bloody shirt. You had parties that would campaign on uh, Civil War loyalties, but the world had, since the Civil War by now, had radically changed because what had happened was a mostly agricultural country had, we had this, the Industrial Revolution had kicked in and had been becoming a industrial country. And that change was just ripping apart the traditional middle class at the time who were all family farmers. So you had all these family farmers and that they'd spent their life working hard and playing by the rules as they had been taught them, which was, you know, you take over the farm that your grandparents had left you and you work hard and, and, and you'll be all right. And what happened was now you had the railroads were cutting in and taking a cut of the profits. Uh, you had deflation because of the new economy and the crops were losing value every year. Farmers were in debt to, to banks. And the parties had nothing to say about all this. So for most of the middle class, life was falling apart. But politics was about fighting the civil war. And there was just this disconnect between what the parties and what politics was about, what people thought was political normal, and the problems that people had that weren't getting solved. So what happened? Well, there was a populist revolt. And this was uh, started with the People's Party, often the Populist Party. And, and angry, a lot of farmers, people in the middle of the country, uh, a lot of workers too, uh, they were very, you know, they were, they were furious. You had this populist revolt that eventually led to, in 1896, this 36-year-old two-term congressman. He was out of office. He, uh, he walks into the Democratic from the middle of the country, uh, and he, he understands the issues, and he walks into the Democratic Convention, and uh, he gives this speech that just completely shatters all the traditional ideas of the Democratic Party. And this is William Jennings Bryan. And he wins the nomination by a claim that he was a nobody effectively when he walked in. He just captures everyone's attention. They give him the nomination. He has this campaign where he sweeps across the country. And in one campaign, turns the Democratic Party into a populist party dealing with the new issues that nobody had dealt with. Throws out the old leadership, throws out the agenda, and, uh, and basically becomes the motivating factor of a brand new Democratic Party, unlike the one that had existed. And, 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 you're, and, this new, and you're okay. saying that that could happen, something like that could happen with the Democrats or the Republicans in the next eight years? Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I think it's, you know, there's two ways these things go, these transitions. When you have this disconnect and this energy for change, either it happens on its own. If nobody does anything about it, the parties will eventually crack, and that's like what happened to the Whigs. But if nobody, but if somebody can harness it, they can ride into the change themselves, like Brian did. And, and what was interesting about the Brian thing is not only did he change the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, in response, had to change and became the progressive Republican Party of, of Teddy Roosevelt. And then you had this new debate. You had two parties that were now dealing with the new world and not the Civil War issues. 
and you unleash this new productive era of reform. Well, let me challenge something on that there, because w- William Jennings Bryan did not exist in a political universe with PACs, with Twitter, with you know all of the, the trappings of modern uh, political movement. If someone who was a nobody who came out of nowhere, wouldn't the opposition research be full bore on them and end up with a uh, a tweet that they made at some point or a YouTube video that they did or something in their past that would completely derail that before it would even start. I mean, we we just didn't, it seems like the political landscape is so different now that even if the ideology looks like 1896, practically does it, does it quack that way? Yeah. Yeah. I think it does. I mean, I I think you're also, even though the, the, the tools have changed, you know, people haven't really changed. Like, if you look at what happened in that, I mean, this was the era of political machines. You know, as bad as all of the things we have now, back in, in those days, you still had really powerful machines that were controlling a lot of politics. And the machines, you know, they hated Brian. The the the, the Democratic establishment that just got thrown out of their party, um, you know, they fought back. And they, uh, they tried to form a third-party splinter movement, but it got nowhere. And, you know, the Republicans got huge amounts of, of money. This was Mark Hanna basically created campaign finance in that election because all the establishment of the country that was terrified of Brian just poured money in to defeat him. And they actually beat him. I mean, you got to remember, he didn't win that election. He did get nominated three more times and totally became the leader and changed the party. But he didn't win the election. It was close. So the tools are different, and, uh, but the, the pushback was not. So what what is the what is the contemporary issue? Um, what is to twenty twenty? What you know the the, the middle class uh, depression was to eighteen ninety six? Is it the same issue? Is that neither party uh, are really identifying the, the the real needs of the middle class? Yeah, I mean that's why I focused in on that one. Um, you know, each of these realignments has a disconnect between the parties and the problems. What's interesting about now and 1896 is there's a very similar problem, which is a shift from an economic model, from agriculture to industrial, and now from industrial to post-industrial. And you, you have a similar situation where you have a lot of folks who have worked hard and played by the rules their own life as a time where the rules are changing. And, uh, and that other people, like it, you know, 1896 is the Gilded Age, while some, the middle class is getting left behind. You have the Carnegies and the Rockefellers and people who were savvy enough to take advantage of the opportunity are becoming millionaires. And you have a a similar transition that's happening now. And I don't see our parties rethinking uh, how do we adjust our country to the new reality of the way that we work and live. And I think that that parallel is there. And this is why there's so much discontent on the left and the right. If you look at the complaint by the progressive left and, and the sort of the populist right, it's a lot of the same complaint, which is the system isn't working, it's rigged, um, and that people like me can't play, we don't have a level playing field to, uh, to, 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 to pursue the American dream. And I think it's the same complaint, and there's a sense that something's wrong, that somebody isn't dealing with this problem, and if nobody does, I think it's going to rip our parties apart. We need to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll continue this conversation. We'd especially like to hear from you, a Democrat or a Republican. 
Do you think your party is in touch with your needs and your interests? Please join our conversation at 314-382-8255 or 382-TALK. You can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Now back to our conversation with Frank DiStefano, author of The Next Realignment, Why America's Parties Are Crumbling and What Happens Next. Um, Frank, there are approximately three dozen Demo- two dozen, three dozen Democrats running for the nomination for president. Do you see a Williams Jennings Bryant type in that field? Yeah, I, I see a couple of people who um, uh, nobody is is all in, but there are a couple of candidates who I think are inching that way and could conceivably do that. But it's you know it's hard because as politicians, obviously they're cautious and. Uh, and, and, you know, they don't want to be bold that way in a way that could threaten their chances. But the, the, the candidates that are thinking about it, one is, is, is Pete Buttigieg, I think, is uh, if you listen to his rhetoric, he seems to get that he's trying to do something new. He's trying to break from orthodoxy. Because if you were going to try to, to, to lead a realignment, what you need to do is you need to throw out all of the 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 – boilerplate and and your sense of like what it is that the the, your party coalition is and what the ideology is and just start from scratch and say how do i address the problems of today and forget what the 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 recipe that has worked for the last 50 years is and he's he's inching and seems to be considering doing that i think andrew yang is absolutely doing that i don't know if he counts as a first-tier candidate um and I see War- Elizabeth Warren, um, if you listen to her rhetoric, what I find very interesting about it is when she, she talks about how the game is rigged and it's corrupt, and it harkens back to a lot of these, these eras because this idea of corruption and that both the, the, a neglected middle class and this idea that there's corruption creeping in the system is something you see in every realignment. But they're, you know, they're still trying to win in the old Democratic coalition. They're not, none of them have yet completely embrace the idea of just throwing out the old. But I could see those three going in that direction. Um, somebody like Harris is obviously somebody who, you know, it's, it's still unclear what she's going to do, so you never know. Um, and somebody like uh, even uh, 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 Cory Booker, who has the, the resume and the style, but, you know, the content hasn't been there yet to do something like this. Well, let's take a phone call. Ryan in St. Louis is a lifelong Democrat who now finds himself as a moderate. Ryan, welcome to St. Louis on the Air. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, so uh, one of the biggest takeaways that I've gotten from the last couple of years of this whole political climate is, as it was, I found myself more to the in, uh, uh, independent moderate, where depending on the issue, I'll fall either way. Yeah, And I found in... I think, and for me, the biggest struggle I've had even having this political debate is talk to like-minded people because every everywhere I go, I find somebody's diehard right, diehard left, and it seems like the ability to think has been lost in our political system. Is that just me, or am I crazy? Frank, you want to take a crack at it? Is, yeah. is Ryan crazy? Probably not. No, you're not crazy. Um, you know, I, I actually think that, you know, what's very hard is that... Um, 
you know, there is the tribal nature of politics always, right? And politics, the, the idea of it is a team sport um, is there. And I think a lot of people are, what you're, what you're talking about is you see a lot of people that are just trying to follow the team wherever it is, and they don't actually understand the issues themselves, and they're not the kinds of people who are going to study issues and really think through their own f- political philosophy. And, and there's nothing wrong with that in itself as long as the folks who are making the product, who know what they're doing, have something, you know, have a product that works. And, um, and, and one of the problems is that right now what you see is nobody is got, you know, nobody has an agenda that's talking to the issues. And then you see the people you're talking about who are just sort of cheering for it like it's sports and pushing it along. But what they're pushing along has no real substance and content. And, and, you know, it, it is frustrating. Uh, it is something that's not unusual. Uh, and the solution to it is that the folks who are engaged and do think about this stuff and know need to be the one to, to put content and, and, and a real ideological change in for other folks to follow. Ryan, if I may ask, do you find any of the presidential candidates on the Democratic side um, radical in terms of... Uh, uh, being better at addressing your interests and your ideas? Honestly, I've seen a couple of, I've seen, I've seen, like I said, maybe Cory Booker, but maybe Cory, maybe Cory Booker just because he, because he does have, he does have this resume and I think he may be the one to break the mold. But again, I still have to see more from him. Ryan, thank you very Ryan, thank you very much for your call. I really do appreciate it. Let's go to Tom, uh, who is also from St. Louis. Uh, Tom, welcome to St. Louis on the air. Thank you. Yeah, as a uh, former, formerly middle class guy in Middle America, uh, I think the crisis that neither uh, neither party is addressing adequately is that when the country was founded. There were hundreds and thousands of real players in the economy and in, and in politics. And as technology advances, uh, the uh, the big banks, the big business is is turning the economy into a series, a small number of fiefdoms, where there just aren't very many real players, and and the rest of us really are like peasants again. And uh, I think you see that on the libertarian side of things, that complaint, and in the Bernie Sanders camp. And uh, but neither neither party can really address it adequately because uh, those are their donors. You know, and, uh, Tom, I think maybe we should go back to the 1896 ed- edition of St. Louis on the air because, Frank, couldn't that same comment have been made about uh, Standard Oil and Carnegie and, and the, the, the big uh, business interests at that time? Yeah, and not only could it, it was, right? I mean, that was a big complaint was that the, the, the big banks and big business, J.P. Morgan and Rockefeller and all these people, um, had a stranglehold on not just the economy, but politics. And a lot of the reason, one of the things about each of these realigning eras in our history is this complaint about corruption and the reality of corruption, uh, of corruption of the political system, is, is a big thing that you always see. And there's it, it's rational why that is, because when the parties no longer have a compelling agendas that people are, are excited about and everything is just drifting. There's no, the only thing that's left is power, politics for politics and for power and for, uh, uh, for personal advantage. And that, that 
the parties are no longer creating compelling agendas for change that people are excited about and it just drift and this corruption thing is something you see it in the 1820s with andrew jackson this whole idea uh you saw it in the 1850s and you saw it in the 1890s and you saw it in the 1920s before the parties went down in the new deal so it's not uncommon and what we hope is that if we get new parties that have agendas dealing with their problems then this sense of of that there's this corruption in the system will will fade away. Tom, do you uh, do you see a uh, a current version of a trust buster, but out there in the in the in the the political climate, someone who would take on uh, the uh, the Googles and the Amazons the way that uh, uh, a Teddy Roosevelt type took on uh, Standard Oil and uh, and and J P Morgan. Well, during Trump's campaign, uh, there was a point where he reached out to Bernie Sanders uh, voters, and uh, it was the same time at which he said that he was the only one who could fix it. <laughs> and uh, uh, I think that uh, uh, you know Sanders might be getting a little long in the tooth for the job, but uh, I think his rhetoric and his positions um, are pretty darn close to where a lot of people uh, want to go. In uh, the middle class, it's not just you know, people struggling to make it, it's the sense that uh, that everybody in America is supposed to be a little bit of a somebody. You know, even people who have food on the table present that sense that the number of real players is becoming smaller and smaller. Tom, thank you for my, your call and for the uh, the transition set up on a silver platter. Frank, let's talk about Donald Trump, because um, where do you see him fitting in with this idea of a next realignment? Because he certainly did not come from any political mold or any uh, 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 political machine or any establishment. Yeah, no, that's right. And what I find so interesting about about what Trump did in 2016 and, and you know, the movement that's come afterwards is you see this energy to rip the old system down. And, and that's what allowed him to come in. He ran a campaign in 2016 that would have never worked in any year before 2016, right? All the, his competitors ran classic Republican campaigns that wouldn't have been out of place in, in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, same issues, the same agendas, and he came in out of left field. And there was this energy in America for that. And it's not unlike, I don't think, because this has been setting in for some time, right? You know, the, the parties have been declining for years. I think a lot of what Obama tapped in in 28, uh, 2008 was very similar to this idea he did. He said he claimed that there would be no red and blue America. That we're going to do the, you know, something new, something exciting, and people got excited about that for a lot of the same reasons. But what he, Trump didn't do once he took office, that people thought he might do, is do an FDR, right? To completely revolution, throw to, to actually then throw everything out. He's made a lot of some policy changes. He certainly has a different style, but what he hasn't done is created a new. New Deal type of idea where he, he, he hasn't really brought a, a complete fundamental reordering of the American political system. So he hasn't brought about the realignment. And, and I think he's a lot like a Buchanan or a Pierce, guys before the Civil War, who rode on that, that energy and used it to help rip the old system down, but without replacing it with a new system. We've got some great callers in the queue. So if you're on hold, please hold on. We will get to you. Um, Frank, but before we take a couple more calls... Uh, so let's say that you are um, a Democrat uh, and you are looking at this huge field 
and you want the realignment and you are compelled by this thought that that uh, that you read in this book and you think this is great and you want to find that change agent but you understand that the the, the one of the outputs of that change may be losing the next election and that Donald Trump will get four more years, that you may find a William Jennings Bryan type that completely redefines your party. But one of the uh, one of the after effects of that will be that you don't take the White House in 2020. Is is that uh, how do you how do you reconcile that in your brain? Um, do, is it worth it to kind of say, OK, we'll vote for someone that isn't going to win, but is going to redefine our party as opposed to what we're hearing a lot on the campaign trail is Democrats want to elect whoever they think will beat Donald Trump. Right. You know, so the way I, I look at it, and, and I can understand that people have different priorities, but the way I look at it, it what, you're, what you really care about most is the long-term health of America and the Republic, okay? And that we get through this transition the most easy and least painless way to a new era of reform where we actually deal with our problems and and actually rebuild the stability that people want and shore up the republic and, and all of this and that's what i think we all ultimately that's the most important thing so if we let's say we don't do this let's say we just keep kicking the can down the road sticking with an old system that isn't working as it's crumbling apart well then it ends like the Whigs, and that's a nightmare because if what happens if the parties actually collapsed and then what happens is in the rubble in all the chaos, everybody who has an idea, who has, who has ambition, jumps into the vacuum to start ripping the country in every direction. And, and chaos takes over, and it can take years and years and years to, until a new order emerges. The Whigs blew up in 1852. We didn't have the new Civil War uh, alignment until 1860, and that started with a war. So that's not – and when the Federalists blew up, it was, it was not good either. There was this era of good feelings where we had no parties for a while and the, the country went into corruption and drift. It wasn't good. That avoiding that, to me, is the number one priority for the good of the nation. If you look at Brian, the, the thing about it was it was one disruptive campaign and then it unleashed this new era of reform that made America – you know, emerge as a great power in the economy, and we fixed all kinds of problems. It was better for the country. So we need to take a quick break. We'll return shortly to our conversation with Frank DiStefano, author of The Next Realignment, Why America's Parties Are Crumbling and What Happens Next, including phone calls, tweets, and emails. You can call us at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back. I'm talking with author Frank DiStefano about America's current political dynamics, and our listeners are getting in on the conversation. Let's go to Paul in St. Charles. Paul, you're on St. Louis on the Air. Uh, yes. Um, yeah, uh, you kind of touched on my, my question a little earlier. Um, my beliefs are definitely more on the liberal side of things, and um, I'm just kind of at the point with this upcoming election in 2020 that I think the most important thing is to um, to, to basically get, get Trump out of office, um, being that his power seemingly is unchecked, uh, the, the checks and balances don't seem to be there at all. 
And uh, so I kind of want to curb, you know, I would love to, to see Bernie um, Sanders or, you know, Elizabeth Warren take office. Um, I'd like to see what they would do with our, our, our system. But I just don't think that the American, <laughs> your average American voter would ever vote for their, their political beliefs, which align with my own. So I'm left wondering, again, you know, what's the best ticket to get Trump, you know, out of office? Um, I think someone like a Biden or, or, or even a Harris is a more logical um, a selection uh, because they seem to be more centrist. And, you know, I also have to remind my friends, you know, I've, I've loved Obama. I put him up there, probably my you know, third, third greatest president. Um, but he was very much a centrist. Um, and I think we need to remember that when coming up to this election uh, with, um, you know, as far as those political views go, you know, curbing my, you know, I guess radicalism, my, my liberalness uh, for a more centrist point of view um, to get Trump out of office. I, I think that's the tantamount, most paramount <laughs> um, issue of coming up in 2020. Well, and Paul, Frank, Frank's point was that it's better for the country on the whole in the long term if the parties realign themselves and a little short-term pain, uh, or at least what Democrats would believe is for short-term pain with, uh, um, with four more years of a Trump administration, is worth it. Are you saying that you don't think it's worth it? I do not think it's worth it. Um, again, because I do not see the, the checks and balances um, of, of the executive office being checked at all. Um, I, I, I don't see an impeachment hearing happening. Um, I don't see um, um, he, he being he be basically, in my opinion, um, a tyrant, you know, of, of close enough to a dictator if I had to go off a checklist. Um, and in four more years, I mean, how much further damage could he possibly do? Um, and, I mean, it's also on the world stage as well. Um, you know, I think a lot of other countries are, are also seeing him as, as, as a similar kind of dictator as opposed to, you know, pres- you know, a leader of the free world, um, you know, face of democracy. Um, and, and again, if, if, I, if I saw some sort of, if I knew that there was going to be at least some kind of impeachment hearing, some kind of trial, um, I would feel better about, yes, oops, Trump got four more years, or, or you know, wouldn't feel as it was as important. But um, I, I think that that's not going to happen, and, and I think it's very, very possible that, yes, he would get four more years. I think um, our parties realigning ourselves is inevitable. Um, I think the new, especially with this past midterm election, the new blood that we see um, in the House of Representatives is very exciting, um, and I think things will change. But I don't know. I like, almost feel like we need to fight fire with fire, um, uh, like the Republicans tend to do, um, and you know, kind of compromise our ethics a little bit um, as liberals and, and say, you know, um, do the ends justify the means? That means getting Trump out of office. And, and yes, I do think the ends justify the means. Paul, thank you very much for your call. Now, Frank, if uh, if Paul is a typical voter, uh, your realignment prediction sounds like it has an uphill battle. You know. What I was thinking about when I was listening to him is that, you know, the other example to to Brian is, of course, FDR. You know, FDR was the guy who spearheaded the realignment that created our own party system today, the New Deal. And what people forget about FDR is he did not run on the agenda that he implemented, right? He ran on balanced budgets, which blows people's minds, right? He he ran – his big issue against Herbert Hoover was that Hoover was overspending and and – you know, the Democratic Party that had existed in 1932, that had existed since Jackson, had been a small government party, didn't like big government, didn't like big business. And, um, you know, FDR kind of kept one foot in the old and the new when he was running for office. Now, you know, there's also been a lot of scholarship that shows that, you know, he was already in his, he already had his brain trust together. And, you know, they were thinking ahead to, 
to some of the changes that they wanted to make. But when they ran for office, you know, he was running on change, but he he was still a smart politician, right? He wasn't just uh, – so I, I, there's not maybe as much of a disconnect between winning and bringing that agenda of change as, 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 as Paul thinks. Are you saying that it's possible that Joe Biden could run as a centrist and then get elected and then implement a more radical – uh, or a more changed policy agenda than he's letting on during uh, the campaign? Now, this is like trying to judge character. I don't know if Biden would do that. Harris might. Somebody like Harris might do that. Now, you've got to judge, you know, are, is this person really going to to, to bring this, this type of – to really rethink the entire – not just the Democratic agenda, but the debate – the political debate in the United States to, to bring in people who didn't used to be part of the coalition to let people who were part of their coalition go if it no longer works to build something new. Uh, somebody could do something like that. Th- that's what FDR did. Let's go back to the phone. Susie in St. Louis uh, has a comment. Susie, welcome to St. Louis on the air. Susie, Is that me? Yes, I'm, that's you, Susie. I'm okay. Um, my question is, I really think that somebody who is able to uh, implement something should be listening to this conversation. I think it's very valuable. And I thank you for giving us the opportunity to have input. My big concern is I think we're not so much a democracy or even a republic as we are a business. We're a a national business. And and it doesn't feel – I mean, it gives all the opportunity for big business to make everything lopsided and unbalanced, and it's going to continue that way. And with the executive orders that are being bandied about, we don't have a balanced government anymore. We don't have a legislature that is competent to balance the executive branch. And it's scaring me because it's allowing things like the horrible prices for pharmaceuticals, the awful charges that my, I have just spoke to a friend in Omaha last night, and her friend, her husband is 90 and has to pay $20,000 a month for one pill in order to keep himself alive. That is absurd. Do you see... And there doesn't seem to be any way to rein that in. Susie, do you see anyone running for president or who is active in the political stage that you believe is the change agent uh, that, that is at, uh, uh, possible in this kind of yes, discussion? When all of the Democrats are saying free health care, that's absurd, too. You can't do that. They, they couldn't possibly rein the military enough to get enough money back from the budget allotments that have already gone out to make it possible to pay for everybody to have free health care. So I don't see that as a possibility, and all of them have endorsed that. I don't. So, so Susie, thank you very much for your call, and and I guess that uh, that you know wanting a change but not seeing the change agent, Frank. Uh, do we? What? Uh, where does the change agent come from? Yeah, I mean, well, so, you know, this is the thing. It's not inevitable that this that somebody does it, right? It's inevitable that the change is going to happen. It has to happen because the current system is unsustainable, right? We're having this debate between liberalism and conservatism, which is a debate over how to manage an industrial economy in the world of a Cold War, the post-Cold War world. And it's not relevant. It doesn't give you an answer to, you know, we're talking about the new healthcare system or, or but, but there's a bunch of stuff that's coming even beyond there, like 
what do we do about AI and, and, and the change in the workforce as we get more AI uh, taking jobs? What do we do about China? You know, the or fighting big government. So that is going to happen no matter what. You just see that the current system is unsustainable and the change has to come. So if nobody leads it, it will Let's um uh, th- while we're having a little bit of crackle on the line, let's go to uh to one of our callers and get another comment. Max uh in uh, St. Louis has a comment. Max, welcome to St. Louis on the air. Good afternoon. First and foremost, this gentleman no matter who wins as president, if Congress and the Senate do not go along with him or her, they're not going to get a thing done. I mean, uh, and right now the only alignment I am seeing is the Republican Party has become the party of Trump. Uh, they're either afraid of him or, in spite of him being uncouth and all that, Okay, I guess we lost Mike. I apologize. That let's go to Tony in Wildwood. Tony, you're on St. Louis on the air. Good day, and uh, so I'd like to extend uh, uh, strengthen what you started out with uh, that these are different times, <clears throat> and also go along with a previous caller uh, that the world uh, it seems like a bunch of countries in the world. This conversation could be extended to a bunch of countries around the planet. And so somebody like Andrew Yang, who's talking about uh, let's tax the robots that put millions of people out of work. And just because uh, uh, slave masters aren't taxed for their slaves, corporations should be taxed for their robots. And that should be a worldwide bit. And then the, the big thing is China's extending the surveillance state around the world and um, this is something that we the people need to worry about big brother global big brother tony do you feel like so and you mentioned andrew yang do you see him as the uh uh someone that could read to lead a new realignment of the political parties based on what you value and what you'd like to see happen I've been paying attention to Warren for a long time, but uh, but Yang is somebody. What he's saying, our species, planet-wide, should uh, pay some attention to. And uh, the the World War II created global structures in order to control Germany and Japan, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it also controls the people worldwide, and uh, this is something that is now our species is apparently in a growth experience process uh, growing out of the World War II structures. And um, what will replace it is going to be high-technology stuff, folks. And uh, that can be very good, and it can be very dangerous. Tony, thank you very much for your call. We do appreciate it. Frank, I'd like to uh, maybe uh, take the, the the discussion in a slightly different area. We've been talking about uh, a newer realignment, and most of our hour has been, ta- has been focused on um, that change coming from within one of the parties. Um, do you think that's more likely than a third party coming in and really changing the, the landscape? I, I mean, I think... The one interesting thing about these realigning eras is they're the times where third parties 
can legitimately come in and replace existing parties. You know, the, the, the myth in America is that third parties never win, but that's not right. Third parties win all the time. They, uh, when, a, when you have a stable working party system, it's impossible to change the system from the outside because you have two parties that have half of America in each, and they're dealing with problems in a way people are happy with, and there's just no way to, to come in from the outside. But when those parties are failing and they're starting to crumble, uh, it's not uncommon for a third-party movement to come in and replace the party. Now, a lot of times people don't realize that because, like we were talking about Brian, well, if you look at what Brian did, basically he merged the Democratic Party with a third party, the People's Party. And the People's Party in that time was, was winning governor and senator races and picking up steam. And he took their message and agenda and just imported it and, and basically threw out the guts of the old Democratic Party and replaced it. Now, you could say the Democratic Party co-opted the populist, but I look at it the other way. I see the populist party basically took over the Democrats and stole their name because they had a better brand. So if you look at this, the Republicans and, uh, and the know-nothings, both of that era, uh, after the collapse of the Whigs, or after the collapse of the, the Federalists, both the, the Democrats and the Whigs from new parties, third parties win pretty regularly during realigning eras. Uh, so, yeah, it's totally possible if the right third-party movement took off. And you might see this with Justin Amash, who's just right now talking about, right, there's, you know, he just left the Republican Party, and people have been trying to recruit him in to run as a third-party candidate. There are other third-party movements out there. There's something called the Alliance Party that's getting some support. Uh, you're seeing that there are the opportunities there if it, if the ball starts running. Well, but... We would it would feel like we're there's some distance away from that because in recent memory, third parties have they had any real impact? Have the Libertarians or Greens? Did Ross Perot? Did John Anderson? Did did any of those you know third party uh, stalwarts of of some note have any of them had any real impact yet? No, no. I mean, if you look at okay, so like all the third parties we know about, the reason that they failed was because the, the existing two-party structure was adequately dealing with people's concerns. The, we were still in the industrial era. People could find, and so maybe a third-party protest candidate, you get a guy like Ross Perot or Anderson, it's not a party. It was one person, right? One person running for president. There wasn't much party infrastructure behind it. When the parties are no longer meeting those needs, they have to be met, and if the parties won't do it, somebody can come from the outside. Now, what you're correct about is so far nobody has gotten enough of that energy because it's got to come bottom up. It's not going to be one rich guy runs a presidential campaign and turns everything on its head. It's going to be people form a splinter movement from the Republican Party of unhappy Republicans, unhappy Democrats. It's going to be something that's much more robust than just one guy decides he wants to be president and Funds. We're talking with Frank DiStefano, author of The Next Realignment, Why America's Parties Are Crumbling and What Happens Next. Uh, we're now going to take another phone call. Uh, Sally is on the line uh, in St. Louis. Sad, uh, Sally, welcome to St. Louis on the Air. Thank you. I really have to say I appreciate your comments, and I just hope that no one wants to do a third party between now and this next election. I feel like all of the candidates are addressing the needs of the people, and I certainly, I'm one that was aware of the third party with Ross Perot and how he affected the the uh, Republican Party from winning. So at this point, 
I hope we just stay with this two parties for this next election. Well, Sally, do you agree with that, even if the third party uh, that showed up was uh, a party that siphoned away votes from the person that you want to have lose? I'm too concerned. I don't uh, personally, I don't want to have another four years of this other. And so I would rather stay with one of the 24 candidates that are running. I think they're trying to listen to the people, meet the needs. And some of these situations of greed hopefully will not continue. Well, so this, Sally, let me be more direct then, because it, it sounds like you're advocating uh, someone uh, in the Democratic Party and not Donald Trump getting reelected. If a third party showed up and if the uh, uh, the upshot of that third party was to take enough votes away from Donald Trump to make the Democrat win, would you change your position on whether third parties are good or not? You realize we'd have to have a large amount and we only have so many months to get that done. So personally, I don't see that happening after the election. If we can get the present company out, then maybe we could look into it. But I, I just actually think the people are, you know, a lot of the average mid American, the average American, the, they are being their needs are needed. And I think there's more people listening to uh, the concerns. You know, we're not at the one, one or two percent of the populace with all the wealth. So, you know. So for right now, I think one of the 24 candidates need to remember, don't carry, tear anyone up, but let's try to stay focused. Sally, thank you very much for your call. And Frank, I think Sally hit on something that while I loved this book and I loved the idea of it, Sally's point of view is kind of the one that I kept coming back to is that everybody would love a realignment as long as it doesn't hurt their party in the short term. So with that kind of context, how realistic, while fascinating and fun it is to talk about the idea of a realignment, how realistic is it if that is a prevailing thought among people who are politically active? Well, I would say it's going to happen no matter what, okay? It, the, the thing you've got to come back to is we're going to end up with two parties that ideologically are geared to solving the new problems. It's really just a question of how we get there. So if we refuse to, if, if nobody steps up to, to bring the change about through the existing two institutional parties, it will come from outside somehow, either through a party collapse. Um, you know, let's say you could see the Republican Party collapse. You could see a third party movement. You could see some radical come in and capture a party nomination. There's a lot of ways that this can go about. It's going to happen no matter what. So I would just say that, that, that I understand the short-term political realities of it, and I think, of course, they're going to play a role. But we have to also realize that we're making a choice, not whether to do it, but how to get there. If you're right, you're going to look like a genius. <laughs> <laughs> and if I'm wrong... <laughs> But I, there's no, I don't feel really much even chance that I'm. If you look at history, you know, you see the pattern. It just it repeats itself over and over again. So, um, it, 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 once you can see that framework, it kind of just jumps out at you. Like, well, of course this is going to happen, and it's common sense, right? Like, obviously, w what's happening right now, people are unhappy with, and they want change. So, w in a democratic system, they're going to get it somehow, aren't they? 
Well, it's very interesting and, and definitely a, a very different political concept than one that gets discussed a lot. I want to thank uh, Frank Stefano, the author of The Next Realignment, Why America's Parties Are Crumbling and What Happens Next, available wherever you buy books, including your local independent bookstore. Uh, Frank, thanks so much for joining us today. It was great to talk with you. Jonathan, it was a thrill. Thanks a lot. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU.